Hello, and welcome to another episode of Aconis, the Contractor's Life from Washington State. I'm your host, Scott Dresser. My guest uh, for this one is Mike Ritchie. Um, we're talking via phone. Uh, he's in the great state of California. I won't go any further than that unless he wants to. Uh, he is a former member of the United States Navy, uh, overseas private security contractor, worked for multiple companies. Uh, including the likes of Triple Canopy, Aegis, um, and I believe there was one or two others. His work experience includes uh, security specialist, force protection, protective security specialist. That's part of the WPS thing. Um, he did some executive protection specialist stuff, emergency response. Uh, Mike finished his uh, overseas contracting in uh, 2013 uh, and uh, was working stateside prior to, during, and after uh, in multiple multiple positions, again, with multiple companies, uh, everything from investigator to protection specialist, executive protection agent, uh, firearms and first aid instructor, and uh, currently, and for a number of years, and Mike can correct and clean up and and expound on any and all of this, um, owner of his company, which goes by the name of uh, Survival Mindset Training. Uh, where he's also the lead instructor. And his company can be found on the World Wide Web at, uh, just like the name, survivalmindsettraining.com. That said, Mike Ritchie, welcome to the show, brother. <laughs> hey, hey, Scott, thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for that, thanks for that long-winded uh, introduction. Right? Well, you <laughs> know. everything but high school and divorces. <laughs> Well, maybe we'll get there, but uh, no, no, you know, okay, <laughs> no sense in rehashing that. <laughs> All right, yeah, no. Uh, well, you know, it's um, you and I have had a a number of offline conversations, and we've done, and this is like take two, maybe even three, but uh, and this has happened in the past, but we've had some technical glitches and uh, wonderful world of podcasting i mean just you know things happen um oh yeah so but we're back at it again we got everything working uh firmware update to the hardware (laughs) you know um yeah go figure anyway so mike for the people that are listening uh for that part that i didn't um, expound upon enough or didn't get in there (laughs) uh tell them uh, who you are what you did um prior to becoming a contractor overseas, you know, kind of lay that path down for us a little bit. Well, I had kind of a, an extremely varied, um, life so far. Uh, and before contracting was, I worked in aerospace for a number of years, um, in a couple of different positions. I tried my hand at being a business development manager and a proposal manager and just, just wasn't me. I, you know, I did it, but I didn't really like it. So I ended up back in the uh, in the security and medical side um, as a, an assistant facility security officer at Northrop Grumman. Did the uh, the executive protection there for the visiting dignitaries and upper level management, and uh, also had uh, seventy one sites, seventy one Northrop Grumman sites that I was responsible for for their crisis management, and emergency response planning, and. Um, procurement of, of necessary items to survive, you know, natural disasters and whatever. Wow. 70, yeah, so, 73 facilities, man. That's, um, <laughs> yeah, it was a handful. <laughs> uh, I'm just saying, brother, I mean, for me, one or two, 
managing or supervising one or two was enough, <laughs> you know? Well, you know, it worked out okay because they're, they're so widely spread across the country. You know, we did it all on, uh, either on, on virtually, um, you know, cause I was there right at the advent of, uh, of the online meeting frenzy. Mm. So we had, you know, the, the cameras and everything all set up and it was just, you know, it's basically just sitting there talking to people and making sure they have what they need to, to survive and understanding that, different regions have different needs of course in california you know we got to be earthquake prepared um in louisiana and, and places like that they need to be prepared for hurricanes and tornadoes and flash floods and everything else so hmm. you know it's a little bit different but basically the same now um two a couple questions there now you said facil- facility security officer or fso as we know it in the industry um right. so guys like you and me you know i don't know exactly because i've never filled that position but i know what a fso is and kind of sort of what they do um but that's an interesting one that that hasn't been brought up i don't think uh in any of these uh episodes uh maybe you can expound on that a little bit uh, what were your duties what's it like and how's it different from stuff you've done before well, the, the FS, FSO uh, uh, in an aerospace facility um, has a, a pretty broad spectrum of responsibilities. They had, you know, there were people that, that were there as, uh, responsible for, um, um, like, Internet security and um, uh, what's the other word I'm trying to say? Um, and we had people that were responsible for... Uh, taking care of security clearance issues and, you know, filing for and, and um, producing the security clearances. Hmm. Uh, we had other people that uh, um, were responsible for uh, the hard copies of um, classified documents that we had on the site. And then there was uh, the physical security side, which which I participated in. Um, we had a fairly large facility, you know, a lot of fence line um, uh, remotely controlled gates and access points. So it's just making sure that, that everything worked properly and that people, um, you know, followed the policies and procedures. Um, you know, again, we had, we had a top secret clearance in some of the departments on that facility. So hmm. we had to make sure that, you know, access was controlled to certain buildings. And then of course we had a uniform division, um, you know, the, the basically the gate guards, um, they were all unarmed. Uh, more of a uh, a basic security guard type position, but you know it all fell under the facility security office. Okay, so facility security officer um, is just that. I mean, you're you're involved in the security aspect, and your function is basically at a management level, making sure that all the security features for the facilities are working as they're supposed to be, including the people. Correct. Okay. Correct. You know, and, and that's interesting. You mentioned physical security, and I'm kind of glad you brought that up because that term, you see it a lot in uh, security stuff uh, when you're looking, reading, and talking with people. And I think a lot of people are a little confused what physical security <laughs> really is. I'm not because um, I've done some of that. Um, and uh, I think it's kind of dry and boring, but. <laughs> yeah, I do too. <laughs> Um, so can, can you fill people in a little bit, uh, what physical security actually is? I mean, what it entails to the extent you can. Well, I mean, it's, it's basically pretty self, self descriptive. You know, we're, we were in charge of the security of that facility. That meant that we, 
we're responsible for keeping unauthorized personnel out of the facility. And if uh, if anyone were to to breach our perimeter, so to speak, um, we were the ones that would respond and and uh, you know and handle things. Um, but again, you know, you're you're working on a facility with you know three thousand people, mm. so there's a lot of different aspects um, that that can violate security. I mean, we had we had an incident with a, a couple that was going through a divorce, and and you know the husband showed up and he was armed and angry and determined to uh, confront his wife while she was at work. Mm. So, you know, we got called for that and, and took care of that situation. <laughs> and, you know, it's just kind of whatever happens, you know, right. you just you sort of take care of it. It's weird, though, because, you know, a number of years ago, and I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but <laughs> I'm old enough that if, if you, and even before the days of, you know, online search engines and things like that, when you answered an ad for security, um, you know, as a prospective employee, you were going to be employed as a security guard. You were either going to be, uh, you know, an observe and report unarmed kind of guy, or you were going to carry a gun and, you know, you're going to take a higher level of responsibility. Now you look at security jobs, there's good Lord, you know, there's internet security, there's, uh, you know, um, uh, information security officers, uh, you know, just there's a whole gambit of of security related positions that you, a lot of people don't think about it. And, you know, it seems like physical security is almost taking a backseat to uh, to electronic security now, hmm. you know. Yeah. And, and that might be the case. Um, but phys- and physical security, <clears throat> my understanding if, and with my experience in doing it. Uh, had and I'm not saying this is a complete or whole uh, description or anything, but I mean a lot of it, as I recollect, was because you mentioned it earlier includes things like uh, it, it can be things like your fences, um, however that's configured. Um, it can be uh, infrared beams. It can be uh, surveillance detection devices. It can be you know little. Um, uh, it, it can be the, the, the room where the uh, safe for sensitive information is stored. I mean, it, it can it, in, it includes those sorts of things. And physical security typically is involved with physical structures and, and, and facilities, correct? Yeah, I mean, it can be. You know, um, when, when you look at it from, from the top level, you're talking about Again, I hate to I hate to keep beating the same drum, but you know if you're if you're on a, a campus type situation like most aerospace companies are, you know, have multiple doors, multiple buildings. Um, you may have a skiff in there, you know, a compartmented information facility. Um, you may have different uh, different safes holding you know different documents, um, you know, different classification levels up to and including top secret. So you have different people, you know that perform different functions, just like any other, any other company. Um, you have the, you know, the lowest paid guy, uh, in, in the, in the area manning the gate, you know, and scanning IDs, um, up to and including, you know, people who are, are like on an armed response team or something like that. Okay. Interesting. Now, now as the FSO, were, were you responsible for all of that? I was the assistant at FSO. I was more on the, uh, uh, on the physical side of things, the FSO is, is usually an upper level management position. Um, someone, you know, with years and years of experience, uh, different levels of, of protection and security. 
Mm. Um, our particular FSO was a retired um, SWAT sergeant. Mm. So, you know, he and he would performed every function you can imagine in a police department from, you know, field training officer to, you know, he was the, the commanding officer of the SWAT team, um, you know, and everything in between. So he was well versed in all levels of security, I- including information security. Uh, InfoSec is huge mm. in, in companies now because of, you know, uh, corporate espionage and things like that. So that portion of the security department has grown exponentially over the last couple of decades. Mm. And, and the onus is put on them to protect, you know, the sensitive information that the companies house and, and transmit internally, mm. you know. So the FSO so, is, is, is a, uh, I, I don't think jack of all trades is the proper uh, description, but I mean, but they're like you said, the words you used were well versed. Uh, so they have a broad spectrum of knowledge. Yeah, to, absolutely. Okay. And they're also responsible at some point, aren't they, for, for the clearances, for the personnel clearances? There's usually a, a department within the security office that handles all that. We had two people that um, their only job was to uh, apply for and manage security clearances. Uh, including revoking clearances, you know, for people who, who quit or were fired or, you know, mm. for, um, or for cause, you know, if they had mishandled, uh, you know, information or documents or something like that. Hmm. And, and that happens. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> happens a lot. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, I, I think every aerospace company in, in the United States has at one point or another, uh, had issues with, uh, with spies actually working in the facilities and, and, you know, capturing and gathering information. You know, that's interesting. Uh, you know, but that's, that's kind of a hot button topic. One of many, uh, these days, but that's something that, that prior to didn't really get talked a lot about. There wasn't a whole lot of exposure. I mean, you might occasionally hear about it, but that really is a concern. Is it not? I mean, it, it is, it is. And mostly it's kept under wraps. Um, you know, you, you probably only hear about really large uh, instances of, of espionage. Like, um, you know, the, the guy, I can't remember his name now, but he was a Navy guy. And he was working for Department of Defense. And he'd been selling secrets for like 20 years. Wow. Well, and and, uh, and in all that time, he made like a half a million dollars. I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> I would ask for a bit more. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, now the one the the name that comes to mind, uh, and it depends on the on the time frame you 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 were thinking of, but was Scott Walker, I believe, um, with the uh, but I think his had to do with uh, crypto communication. But and I don't think I don't recall if his was the one that was also involved with the propellers for the Los Angeles class submarines back then that he was selling to. Yeah, I, I think, think the Japanese. I think that was Walker. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, and that was during the Reagan administration, as I recall. Uh, yeah. Right. Uh, I don't think it actually came out in full until a little bit after that. But uh, anyway, yeah, no. Um, so so that's that's huge stuff. And that's a big concern, both stateside and OCONUS, is it not? Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's pretty much everywhere. You know, wherever there's an American presence... Um, you can pretty much count on somebody trying to uh, trying to gather that information. Right, right. You know, there was there were some stories back in the day. Um, I don't know how true they were, but when the Navy developed nuclear propulsion, you know, back in the late fifties with the USS Nautilus, um, 
you know, that was a huge espionage um, goal was to get, you know, naval nuclear secrets. Hmm. And, and so the story goes, like I said, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's said that the, the Navy, uh, along with the British Navy, um, embarked on a disinformation campaign and they released certain portions of, uh, of Navy nuclear propulsion uh, for consumption by other nations, uh, specifically Russia, and that they left a few things out, like primary shielding for the reactor, you know, keeping people safe, and hmm. and some other little items. And and it was uh, it was said that back in the seventies that a, a Russian nuclear submarine crew didn't last very long because they didn't really have the same type of nuclear shielding that we enjoyed on our submarines, and they would get you know. You get radiation sickness. So again, I don't know if it's true or not, but you know, I would one of those. I would one I of would, those stories out there. Yeah, I, I would. I would gander a guess that, that there is a lot of truth to some or a lot of that um, because I've I've heard s- those sorts of uh, things over the decades um, in various forms of media. Um, you know, both in terms of uh, dis- mostly you know disinformation, intelligence stuff um, based on you know. Basically, what you're talking about. In fact, there's been a couple of movies. Uh, I think the most recent one that comes to mind is uh, K something, the Widowmaker. Um, yeah, it, it was a, it was a little bit different, but it but there's been several reports out there about that sort of thing. About um, in fact, I was reading something earlier today before you and I got on the phone about uh, the uh, Alpha class submarines that the Russians had, and uh, I'd forgotten that uh, apparently. You know, you talked about shielding. That was that was one of the one of the issues they had with that. Uh, yeah. they fixed it eventually. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, so disinformation, information, and, and espionage. I mean, that that's huge, and and that's why sometimes guys are pulling their hair the hair out of their head, going, "God, man, I'm waiting on this contract, and I've been waiting for six months for my clearance." It's like, yeah, well, you know, those guys that sometimes take a year to get that. Yeah, welcome um, to contracting. Right. <laughs> but, so, you know, when, when you talk yeah. about espionage, though, it's not just, you know, like spy versus spy. It's not w- one country versus another. There's um, corporate espionage is huge. Huh. You know, all companies are always looking for an advantage. And, you know, if you have company A and company B that manufacture the same type product and company A can get into company B's private files and find out why their product is so much better, you know, that's that's big. Right. It's big money. Um, and it's, it's big risk. Right. So, but yeah, it's like you said, you know, about being a contractor. I mean, I, I went from, uh, from Iraq on the, the end of the, the twist contract with SOC. We closed that out in November of, uh, God, what year was that? 2010, 2011. Hmm. Um, I went from that to a medical contract, you know, where we were going to staff the, the hospitals and clinics, uh, in the green zone. And I sat on my butt for three and a half months at a resort in Florida waiting for an entry visa. Wow. It never came. Really? Yeah. So so you were never deployed on that contract? No. Oh, wow. I was deployed. I deployed to the swimming pool on a daily basis. (laughs) (laughs) And the the tattoo parlor and a number of local bars and restaurants. Yeah. I was Um, Okay. Yeah. You know, we got there. we, We went through all of our training, you know, um, we did some firearms training. A lot of these people were, um, you know, they weren't us. They were 
civilian, you know, medical practitioners. They were uh, physicians, assistants, and and EMTs and paramedics that you know had never had any of that type of training. So it was pretty entertaining, hmm. I got to say, seeing some of these people with a gun in their hands for the very first time. <laughs> <laughs> it, it can be. It can also be a little. Um, uh, I, I've never really been scared or frightened by it, but a little. Uh, unnerving, I guess, is the word sometimes. Yeah, you always kind of stand, you know, back and to the right a little way. <laughs> yeah, right? Unless they're left-handed, then it's, you know, to the left a little bit. And, and that's exactly. so, so we can be in a position to deflect or block or, you know, rustle from the left. Ha- right, so. right. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, that was that was pretty wild, though. I mean, we finished our training in about three weeks. And, hmm. you know, it was, it was fairly immersive. We took an Iraqi language class and, and uh, um you know, so that was kind of informative, but, and for the most part, it was going check in in the morning and, you know, we were done by nine 30 or so. Wow. It's like, all right, what do you want to do? Well, right. uh, I don't know. Let's go to the pool. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. so now you said, uh, you were, you, that's the one you were going to deploy to the green zone. You said, yeah, I'd already been in, uh, in Iraq. I went, uh, through Baghdad and then down to Cobb Adder to Lil in Southern Iraq in, uh, on Azaria. Okay. By the great ziggurat of Ur. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, that's a. Uh, I think you and I talked about that before. That's a. That's a big base, and and from oh, what I understand, it's still there. It's still operative, but um, I don't know for sure. I think I've heard guys say that there's still uh, State Department and other agencies are still there. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that that's true. I mean, I know that we we closed out that contract and and left behind a lot of vehicles and um, equipment. Huh. Now, um, you know, we built a lot of buildings on that base, too, that, that stayed. We built the airport, um, rebuilt the runways, built a control tower and the radar. What I understand now, it's operating as uh, as Ali, Ali International Airport or something like that. I don't think there's any State Department left there. There and, could and, be. And maybe that, yeah, it, it may, that may have been one of the bases that got turned over, um, you know, back when uh, we were pulling out. Uh, in fact, you, I think you said... Uh, I think it was you that told me that uh, you're you remember seeing the last um, active duty military unit uh, pull out, or maybe it was an MP unit. It was it was the MP unit that was assigned to the uh, the main entry control point, uh, hmm. my particular post. They were the last uh, American unit to cross the border into Kuwait. Wow, when it closed out. And now now. For the people that are listening, especially those that don't know, haven't been, that haven't experienced something like that, it, it, can you articulate what it felt like when you went, you know what, we're kind of here by ourselves now. What was that like? What was that experience? Well, we were never there alone. I mean, you know, we were there at the same time, the military. So when you're talking about uh, Cobb Adder, like you said, that base was absolutely huge. We had a huge Air Force presence because it was a, a major uh, air terminal. Um, we had a huge army presence, uh, a moderate Marine presence. Now and then they would roll through every once in a while. Um, and we also had a huge, uh, Iraqi air force and army presence along with Iraqi civilians that worked on the base. So there were thousands of people on that base every day, you know, so we were never there without a military unit being there. Um, I think SOC, officially pulled out about three days before that last army unit left. Huh? So we were never there without the military. Okay. All right. But it, it scaled down quite a bit. Right. I mean, um, but isn't you know, that kind of an eerie feeling 
<laughs> when you see all that scaling down and draw down and you know and as you go out from day to day and week to week and you realize you know there's not as many guys out here as there used to be not as many vehicles yeah. not as much anything <laughs> yeah and we had we had severely uh, cut down our uh, our ugandan security force as well um we had a, a fairly large contingent of ugandans that uh, i spent a few weeks um my call sign was daddy daycare <laughs> I, I was i was uh, i was shuttling ugandans out of the theater so that's funny you know, uh, was, daddy daycare yeah, yeah have you I, seen the movie I, yeah yeah i still give the guy baboon ass the one that gave me that nickname but, oh know. that's funny you know it was it was mostly guys that you know they're their contract was up or they were being released for cause, you know, they had a negligent discharge or, you know, kind of doing something stupid or, or whatever. Or an attitude. Um, or yeah. Attitude would do it too. I took a few of them out of there in handcuffs, but. Hmm. Wow. You know, now, was, we're talking about the Ugandans that were, that you were escorting, correct? Yeah. They were contracted to the, right. To, um, the company to SOC. And, and that's, that was down there in the Al Nazaria area. Um, you know, and for those that are listening, yes, you know, we're talking Al Nazaria of biblical fame. Um, uh, it's strange, strange area. I mean, it was cool area, you know, if you could get out and see stuff, but even sometimes just seeing stuff, uh, from afar and looking through the binoculars and whatnot. Um, I was, I was okay seeing it from a distance on the other side of the fence. I had absolutely no desire to go out in the country, you know, really see now mean I'm the other way. I mean, there. I guess it depended on which side of the bed I woke up on 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 that day, but I mean, I I kind of always wanted, I always enjoyed getting out and going, driving, walking somewhere. It just, you know, maybe it's just that wanderlust in me. I don't know that curiosity. I'm just not, you know, that. Ter- maybe I should have been more concerned. I don't know. <laughs> but, oh, maybe you know, I I, I got enough of the uh, immersion into the uh, into the Iraqi culture. You know, dealing with the the civilians that worked on base every mm. single day yeah know? yeah checking them in checking them out you know searching them every day before they leave the base and taking toilet paper and paper towels and cleaning products and and everything they were trying to sneak off the base you know we, oh, we wow. caught them we caught <laughs> probably 99 percent of them wow um well that's interesting okay so so what was that's a good one what was your average if there was an average day what was your average day like there in uh, at Adder, um, from the time you woke up to the time you went to bed, what was an average day like? What, 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 you know, what did you encounter? What did you do? That sort of thing. Well, we did seven hour shifts, uh, out at the ECP. So we had an overnight shift. So my morning would be, you know, up at, you know, five thirty or so go and grab some breakfast. Um, you know, get back, get ready, do a guard mount, make sure all of the Ugandans showed up and, you know, they were ready to go. And the base was so big. You know, we had, we loaded up two trucks and, uh, two of the big bongo trucks mm-hmm. with the guys in the back and then a couple of smaller vehicles and, and took the drive out to the ECP, um, you know, did a turnover with the night crew, see if anything had happened, which hardly ever did. And, uh, our day shift was comprised of vehicle and, and, um, uh, pedestrian traffic coming onto the base to go to work. Um, mm. there were a certain number of of individuals in the community that were allowed to drive onto the base. Um, there were a lot of transport vehicles, uh, but mostly the people that worked there had to check in um, at the main entry point uh, right out at the edge of the base 
and then uh, go through what we called the green mile. It was a, just about a mile long, uh, two sided T wall walkway and, you know, one way in and one way out. I think I remember that one. I think you and I talked about that. That's that, uh, kind of a meander. It's, it's, it's a meandering walk. And as in, and I remember a few times going, what, (laughs) come on. Anyway, it makes sense in, in hindsight, but at the time it was like, come on, man, just, would you get me from point A to point B? You know, in in hindsight, you're right. It does make a lot of sense because we had cameras that that saw every bit of it and had people monitoring the cameras. So we could see if anybody was trying to, you know, secret something onto the base or, you know, if they were getting something try to toss over the fence like that. Um, well, you know, yeah, and, and it's also an designed to, to hem them in, right? I mean, if they, if, oh, yeah. right, right. Yeah. They're not going anywhere. You know, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty good sized T wall and it's nice and slick on the side. So yeah, climbing, yeah. it was going to be an issue. Okay. But once they got in, they went through a, uh, they went through an x-ray scanner, just like at the airport, um, you know, and, and just like at the airport, if we saw something on the x-ray that, you know, was questionable, we'd pull them aside and, and, and do a, a further search. They hmm. came through and, and, um, picked up their ride and, you know, would go on to their, to their business on the base, whatever it was, if they were running a, a tailor shop or, um, you know, part of the cleaning crew or whatever they would do. Um, vehicles were the same way. We had a, a vehicle inspection area. This talk about meandering. It was like a, uh, a maze to get through this thing. It's first the, the backscatter x-ray, um, you know, out in, out on the point, um, you know, just looking for obvious signs of, of weapons or, or other contraband. And then come through and get um, another x-ray inspection. And from there, they would wait to drive on to the, uh, the pit lanes, you know, where, where we had the underground pit where you get under and look at the, the undercarriage of the car. And, and they were required to get out of their car and, and go to a secure holding facility uh, while we inspected the car. Hmm. We had a... Uh, we had a, a company there called AMK9. Um, they provided all the uh, uh, search dogs. So we'd run the dogs around the car um, specifically for, uh, you know, bomb, bomb residue or ammunition. Hmm. So that's interesting. Uh, you mentioned the pits. I know what you talk about. I've seen, I remember um, being at two, I want to say two bases where they had those, but that was not. As I recollect, at least where I was, the places I went, that wasn't a common thing. And I'm guessing, based on talks with other people, that was that was more of an Air Force thing. Is that right? It was. It was. It was the the Air Force, I believe, built that base initially, and and one of their requirements was a, a covered inspection area for vehicles with access to the to the undercarriage. Now right. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to be down in that pit and have a car come across <laughs> with a bunch of wires hanging out of it. You know? <laughs> It would be kind of a bad place to be. Yeah, there's yeah, <laughs> yeah. Try to get out in time, right? Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, well, you know, and that's that's an interesting point too, because I remember, uh, you know, times there. Was, uh, I won't go into. I won't make it long, but you know, it's kind of like when you're searching a vehicle, and you spot something suspicious, or you think, you know, what this might actually be it. You got to be super calm and composed so you don't oh, uh, yeah. tip off to anybody that you've spotted anything because you know what's going to happen if they think you found it, right? If they're going to push the button. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So did did you know? I got to ask, man. Did you have any of those moments when you went, "Oh crap, this is my day"? Um, yeah, a couple of times. <laughs> you know, it, it it turned out uh, everything turned out okay. Um, you know, it, and just like humans, you know, even the dogs had a bad day every once in a while. We we brought a 
a dog team out and they ran around the car and got in and sniffed around and had my guys get in the car afterwards and they found like 200 rounds of ammunition under the seat you know and the dog missed it huh but you know so everybody has a bad day now and then right well it does yeah we do it happens Right. Sometimes having a bad day, though, as a bomb detection dog, it could be a bad day for everybody. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. But no, those those guys were pretty sharp. They they took really good care of those dogs. Um, you know, we had we had some great uh, handler canine teams out there. Um, yeah, you know, you're I, talking about AM canine, right? Is that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they they were. I don't know what their presence is now, but I remember there was a time when it's like they seemed to be everywhere. No, they were everywhere. They were all over the country. And, right. and I'm not sure either. I think they may have gotten rolled into Constellus, but I'm not sure, just like everyone else, you know? Right, <laughs> right. Okay. Well, I remember uh, coming across, I remember working with guys, uh, AMK9, in Afghanistan as well. So, I mean, so for a time, yeah. I mean, they were just kind of like everywhere. No, um, they were it. It was AMK9, and I think EODT had a, had a K9 presence as well, but I'm not sure. Well, I think EODT did have their own. Uh, yeah. I don't know how big it was because um, I remember some of the I remember seeing some of the uh, what they call the working dogs and they and the guys that were you know that were their handlers and they had you know uh, EODT on them um, yeah and so yeah so but again I don't think they were I don't think they were the same size as AMK9 I I think what they did was they provided dog teams for the contracts that they took. You know, to protect and, the right. EODT guys. Right. No, yeah. I think that's exactly right. Um, uh, I think that's what it was. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, the the dog, the dogs could sometimes be, um, what does I say, a calming presence when they're around. Because the, uh, they're not, they also have an, in, an innate instinctive uh, security measure about themselves, too. I mean, they're not just, you know, sniffing for stuff. I mean, but if some, if some fella gets out of hand... Well, all those dogs, as far as I knew, all of the all the dogs we had out there were uh, multidisciplines. So they were protection and and detection. Okay. And and they may have been a calming influence for us, but the Iraqi civilians did not <laughs> like dogs at all. They were scared to death of dogs. Yeah, they were. And and something else I found out that was very interesting about the population, they were not afraid of rifles. You pull a rifle on them, they didn't. They couldn't care less. They right, deathly, deathly afraid of pistols. Yes, and I and I remember that was the weirdest thing when I first encountered that, and it took me several to um, start finding out the reason why. And it's like, oh well, okay, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know that, but I just thought that was weird. But it's like, okay, you know, um, so yeah. Wherever I went, I had both, you know. Um, but well, at least yeah. my pistol when you're in Iraq. Uh, Afghanistan was a little different, though. I mean, those guys. It was. Uh, I think th- the pistol was could be intimidating, but it was the rifle, especially if you had an yeah. AK. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, so okay, so you're down there in Al Nazri at, at Cobb Adder. You're working for SOC, and uh, so you kind of walked us through. Is that was that your average day when you were there doing that work? Yeah, it was. You know, it was a seven-acre facility, hmm. so I had I had multiple positions that I would go out and, and check. You know, I'd, I'd check the the car inspection area. Um, I had another guardhouse that kind of overlooked um, the zigzag pattern for the cars to drive through. I had two guys in there. 
Um, I had guys at, at each one of the inspection stations. I had 25 guys out in car inspection. Um, I had two guys in an overwatch position uh, on the main road that looked directly at the, the main gate. And then I had uh, two guys at the, uh, at the car entry gate. Um, you know, one side is U.S. base and the, next, the outside is, is Iraq. Mm-hmm. And then I had, um, I usually have two Ugandans with two army personnel at the uh, main pedestrian entry point. Hmm. So, and I would, you know, I'd go out and walk it a couple times a day, three times a day. So, so you were um, a supervisor then, right? Yeah, I was the ECP supervisor. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Now, did you work? Now, was that the only uh, facility there or post that you worked at or was that your primary or the only one um that was primary i mean you know when i was off i'd go and assist in the uh, in the medical clinic i'd, I'd help the, the docs out that we had there um just because of my background um we had uh we had multiple posts in, at Cobb adder that we were responsible for we had guys that worked in the uh def- base defense operations center um we had guys that worked at the the passenger terminal you know with the air force um, we had entry control gates on the runway. Um, so we had a, quite a few different positions there. Um, but yeah, I got assigned out at the ECP and, and kind of found my, found my home out there. Hmm. Okay. Now what about, um, I know when I was there, um, we, we also had munitions and, uh, forget exactly the, the acronym, but were the, uh, the trucks and the convoys would assemble, um, before, you know, for inspection and they'd get their brakes and do whatever they got to do and then take off. Um, did you guys do any of that stuff? We did not. Um, you know, there was an area, there's a, uh, a congregation area out there where the, uh, military convoys would, would gather, you know, and do their final vehicle inspections. They'd, they'd go weapons hot and, uh, you know, and then they'd leave the base in their convoy. Um, you know, we'd have, have convoys come in, um, but they would blow right through my gate. You know, hmm. we'd, we'd get radio traffic that they were coming in, and I'd, you know, send a couple guys out there and open the gate, and they would just, they would come through. We had other contractors. Um, I'm not really sure who they worked for. Um, you know, drove some really interesting vehicles with the, the big antennas and the, um, the Duke system attached to them, which I found kind of interesting. Hmm. Um, and they would come running through the gates usually at night. <laughs> okay so, yeah i don't want to speculate on what right. they may have been doing out there in the countryside i don't think they were camping but right you know. <laughs> yeah yeah um we won't go too deep into that one right um so uh so you were there for how long now i was there for about a month and a half okay I just finished out that contract okay uh and 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 now uh, was that i'm tr- you did say that that was your first in-country contract yeah okay so so from there uh what happens next well, from there, I, I went home. I was home for about two weeks, and uh, I'd already applied for the um, the medical gig, so I was getting ready to go right back to Baghdad. Um, you know, so I got home. It was uh, just before Christmas when I got home. Um, I stayed through Christmas, and uh, or no, I'm sorry, I stayed through Thanksgiving and left, and then was uh, was in Florida for a number of months. You know, just waiting to deploy. Hmm. And, um, <clears throat> nothing happened. So I started contract shopping and, uh, I found the, um, 
the contract with Triple Canopy uh, to go and stand up uh, the, the contract at uh, uh, Camp Leatherneck in Helmand Province, Afghanistan. Mm. So I got picked up for that. We went back to training, you know, trained at Jestic down in Louisiana, and then we went to um, Tier 1 Group in West Memphis, Arkansas, and finally ended up uh, at Camp Lejeune and, and flew out of Camp Lejeune out of Cherry Point. No kidding. All right. Yeah. Spent three lovely days in Manas, Kyrgyzstan. Um, oh, re- it, on your way in? Yeah, in January. That oh, was okay. really nice. Was it? Or no. are you being? No. <laughs> God, it was. <laughs> it was so cold. Yeah, and you weren't prepared yeah. for it, were you? You know, we really weren't. We we got our issue for Afghanistan, you know, and and you know, you take a jacket and some extra stuff, but man, it was, it was just butt cold there. <laughs> I don't. I lived in Utah for a number of years. I don't think I've ever been that cold. Really? You know? wow. Yeah, and you know they had, and it's an uh, it's an American base. The transit center was was set up there outside of the the Manus airport to support uh, operations going into Afghanistan. So hmm. that was the main entry point. Um, you know, hmm. they had really nice barracks and they had some you know some little restaurants, little restaurant row down there. And for some reason, they put us in these general purpose tents. You know, thirty five guys in these tents, and you know, a shower tent and a and a toilet facility it was just oh man it was just nasty i couldn't wait to get out of there <laughs> <laughs> so even as a contractor uh we're, we're we're kind of very used to this sort of thing even that was a little uh uncomfortable um <laughs> one might say uns- unsanitary well no I, I wouldn't say unsanitary it was just so blasted cold and it it turned cold like the day before we got there mm. and it was just it was numbing you know I, you just didn't want to do anything. You'd, you'd go and eat and you go back to the tent and crawl under your blankets yeah. and sleep. <laughs> <coughs> so. so it wasn't it wasn't that you had to rough it. It was just that sheer. You know, I I, I kind of understand what you're saying. I, I think, uh, to the best of my recollection, one of the coldest winters I've ever experienced was in Afghanistan. I mean, it's like, I mean, it was a constant source of irritation. I could not find a pair of boots that would keep my feet from not going numb after an hour or two. Yeah, I don't think those boots exist. Yeah, <laughs> they probably don't. I don't know. Unless well, you know, well, Mickey Mouse boots. You know what we're talking yeah. about. Yeah, those might work. Yeah, maybe <laughs> you're gonna maybe. look like a moron, <laughs> right? Okay. So, so you flew through. You spent a few days in Kyrgyzstan. You said on your way yeah. down to Afghan uh, Helmand Province. Okay. Yeah, and it was us and about uh, two hundred Marines that hmm. were uh, transferring into the base. We all piled onto a C-17. Those those poor kids, you know, they had their rifles and their packs and, you know, all the crap they're taking with them. And they put them in those tiny little, you know, the seats that they bolt into the middle of a C-17. Yeah. They don't really bolt them and they slide in and, and lock in place. But it looked incredibly uncomfortable. But they gave us the whole outside area, you know, in the little jump seats. Wow. So we're, you know, we were able to get up and walk around and look out the windows. I have some great pictures flying over the, flying over the mountains. Huh. Um. But yeah, it was my first time on a C-17 and? after having a few hundred hours in C-130s. It, it was like going from uh, from a Toyota Corolla to a semi. <laughs> right. Wow. It was just huge inside. And, and did were you more comfortable in the C? I mean, in terms of atmosphere? Oh, yeah. Yeah. C-17 is way more comfortable. Um, but man, you talk about power. You know, when we took off, that is... 
it's amazing because it, it almost takes off level. It just starts to lift off the ground and then mm. they rotate up and go into a climb. And it feels like it's just never going to stop climbing. Huh. You know, it's just, it's just such a powerful airplane. Really? Uh, yeah. You, you know, I've been in them. I've never flown in them, but I've been in them. And, uh, you know, they're deceptively large. They, you know. Oh, my uh, God. Uh, <laughs> when you're sitting inside of it, you feel like you're sitting in a warehouse, you know. <laughs> And and then all of a sudden it's thirty five thousand feet off the ground and you're going, well, how'd this happen? Right. <laughs> well, so. I hear that it's the uh, the way they likened it. I remember when they when it first you know went into uh, uh, the fleet there in the Air Force and they uh, they were likening likening it uh, to the F sixteen in terms of the fly by wire stuff that they had in there. They said it was a uh, a transportation pilot's. Uh, you know, uh, dream come true. They said yeah. the way it flew, it just handled so well and had so much power. It was, you know, that the guys that were used to flying the one thirties and the one forty ones and stuff like that, it's like, wow, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that's like the difference between flying a, uh, you know, a regional jet and a triple seven, you know, a regional jet is still, you know, hydraulics and cables and and you know real pilot feel in, into the into the inputs in the airplane and then you know you get a triple seven it's all digital dash and right. you can set it for takeoff set it for landing and go get a cup of coffee <laughs> <laughs> wow so, yeah yeah it was, a, it was a cool experience okay and then uh you know landed at uh at camp bastion which is actually the british side uh, of of this base um very unique base um, the British side was, was Bastion. That's where the airfield was, but the, the Marines had a presence over there with, uh, a Harrier and a couple of helicopter squadrons, hmm. um, a lot of, a lot of maintenance facilities uh, on the, on the North side of the base. Um, and then there was camp, Le well, camp Bastion surrounded that. So that was all of the British troops. Um, and there was a roll three hospital there. So, you know, one of the premier trauma units in hmm. uh, in that area in Helmand province so we had medical personnel from canada and sweden and and denmark and the united states and you know so it was a pretty diverse base hmm. uh, on that side and then the leatherneck side was basically the marine corps base and then there was also an afghan army base called shorbach so and they all just kind of coexisted shorbach of course was you know was sectioned off from from the American and British side, um, very little mo movement through there hmm. uh, by Afghan troops. So, you know, that's, um, <clears throat> I was going to say, I've never been to that base, but I've heard, you know, a lot of guys talk about it. My question is, and I th I think somebody kind of sort of touched upon it a little bit, is, is I mean, you, you're still in relatively close proximity, and, and, you, and you get out and you see each other and work, with each other, but is there a lot of interaction between the, the various forces or do you guys oh, yeah. stay segregated? No, we, no, we were, we were very much entrenched with, uh, with the British forces, especially on the airfield side. Um, we had, we had four ECPs on that side. And then just North of the airfield, we had the, the main supply area, the, the ammunition depot. Hmm. So, um, triple canopy took the security of all of that. Um, we took the entry control point, took all the towers and these were perimeter towers. It was, you know, tower five feet fence Afghanistan, hmm. you know, and, and, a, and a road that went all the way around the outside of the base wow. um, that was traveled quite frequently because there was a there was a small village uh, on the north northeast side of the base. Um, 
that you could see, you know, as you came around the airfield uh, and see their big poppy fields growing out there. Hmm. So. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Heroin's still big business. in (laughs) You know, it has been for a very long time. I don't think it'll ever go away. Um, you know, point, uh, you know, kind of a point of contention. I mean, you know, there, you got people on both sides of the fence arguing the case. Um, and I can see both sides, you know, um, I can, I can too, but I, I, I think what I, what I found the most, um, disheartening was that that area, Lashkar Ga and the Helmand province, it was the confluence of a, a number of different rivers. So it, it was an extraordinarily fertile Valley. Hmm. Um, and, and at one point in time, it was the um, it was the economic and, and the uh, the productive um, area of Afghanistan. Hmm. You know, very culturally significant. Um, you know, it was a financial center, and and then the Taliban came in and you know took over everything. And you know, if that- you can grow pomegranates and dates there, guess you know guess what else you can grow? <laughs> it grows poppies really well. <laughs> okay, so. Now you're so for the folks that are listening that have them, you know they've they've a lot of people have heard you know Helmand Province and and Camp Leatherneck and maybe you know even Bastion, but for the folks that are listening that that maybe don't really know other than you know maybe they've looked on Google Maps and checked it out. I mean, can you kind of give a on the ground perspective of what it's like down there? Um, everything you've heard about Afghanistan is true. Um, it, <laughs> It's, it's really cold in the winter. Uh, it rains a lot. Um, the sand isn't really sand. It's more like baby powder. <laughs> and when it, when it gets wet, it turns to baby doo-doo mud. Um, and it just gets everywhere. And when we got there, we, we caught the tail end of winter. So it was still like down in the 40s. Um, it was still rainy, still wet. Um, you know, so this, this baby powder mud was just, it, it was everywhere. You just could not get away from it. Hmm. And then... It seemed like overnight, you know, everything's dried out. Uh, there isn't a cloud in the sky, and it's 110 degrees. Wow. So, All in one day. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Okay. So um, now, from the main supply area, uh, when you drove in uh, through the ECP and, and got onto one of the roads that, that traversed this area, um, there were ammunition supply bunkers built into the ground, you know, that, house the larger weapons and um, we had flat areas you know for small arms munitions and things like that there's a generating station um a couple other buildings on the facility but it was mostly just wide open country hmm. and and i have to tell you on, on a clear day it was pretty awe-inspiring you could you could get out of your vehicle and stand there in relative safely in the middle of this you know this large large area and and you're looking at the bottom end of the hindu kush uh of the Himalayas, you know, mm. um, you know, jagged peaks and, and, you know, the sun setting through that. It was, it was a very cool place. Um, right. except for, you know, everybody there wanted to kill you. Right. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting you say that because I've often mentioned that, uh, both in Iraq and Afghanistan and other places there in the Middle East as well, uh, they do have a lot of cool, deep, rich history. And there is a lot of just, like you said, awe-inspiring, and then just like wow moments, at, especially at sunrise and sunsets. And if you and if you could just for a moment forget that you're in the middle of a conflict zone, it's like yeah. this is actually pretty cool, man. 
you know? Yeah, but you know what sucks about it is it's like you, you said before, you know, the, the biblical history of of southern Iraq, you know, the great ziggurat of Ur um, alleged to be the birthplace of Muhammad. Um, you know, and if you if you read uh, about the Muslim religion, um, you know, it parallels Christianity, you know, all the way back to Abraham. Um, right. But you have a you have a certain group of people, just like you do in, in, in every other country and every other religion, that, that take religion to the level of fanaticism. Right. And and you know, you heard about um, you know, in Iraq and in Afghanistan where these different warring parties would go around and they would just destroy history. They destroy monuments and statues. And then you look at this country in the last couple of years, and there's a group of people doing the exact same thing. Right. I was just going to say, I'm, but you said it for me. <laughs> it's kind of like, hey, you know, kind of like what they're doing here. <laughs> you know, hi- history, and, and, and I'll say this, and this will be just about all I'm going to say on the topic because I'm, I'm pretty pissed off about it. But history is not there for you to love or hate. It, it's there for you to learn from. And, and if you find a monument or an inscription on a wall or, um, you know, whatever, if you find something like that to be offensive, then work it out. You know, talk about it. Study it. You know, you don't destroy it just because you don't like it, you know. Right. I don't like lima beans, but I'm not going to go out and, you know, make it my life's work to destroy every <laughs> lima bean field in the country. You know, right. it's just it, it's a it's an incredibly stupid and my opinion, uh, incredibly naive position to take that if something offends you, you should destroy it. Right. Well, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, if you go back to, you know, the late 70s and early, well, even through the mid and late 80s, uh, when the Russians had invaded Afghanistan, <clears throat> uh, probably about the time that most people really heard about Afghanistan, uh, with that, uh, uh, you know, when... And then after that, when the Taliban moved in uh, and became a thing, and they started destroying what the Russians didn't destroy, I mean, you know, you talk to the Afghans and and talk to them now, and it's like, you know, they're like really kind of pissed off. They're kind of like, you know, you destroyed an awful lot of our history, a lot of our culture, a lot of... There's a lot more to it than that, Um, you know, again, just in my opinion. But when Russia invaded Afghanistan, uh, you know, who funded the Mujahideen? Who gave them weapons? Well, yeah, <laughs> we did. And then we, and then we go in there, you know, however many years later, and and it's come over to the Taliban now, and we're basically fighting people using, you know, the weapons and technology and, and training that that we provided. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So it's it's kind of like this country never learns its lesson. You know. <laughs> uh, you know if you don't want to fight people that are using the same crap you are, don't give it to anybody. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and well, and that's a good point. I mean, but for the longest time, I mean, we've been doing that. Started with the Lend Lease, I guess, uh, back in oh, at, yeah. you know World War Two. But yeah, I mean, we. You're right. I mean, um, we were constantly providing. Um, our material, our personnel, our technology, or whatever you want to call it, to other nations. Um, sometimes they're allies, sometimes they're quote-unquote friends, and other times they're just, you know, uh, we want to help them out, quote-unquote. Uh, but, well, yeah, it's not, it, it frequently comes back to bite us in the, in the arse. Yeah. No, it does. And, and, you know, it seems to me that somebody should stop and go, 
okay, these guys that we're going to go fight, yeah, they have M16s and, you know, some older warplanes that, that we gave them. What, what do you think we should do? And right. It's like, I don't know, maybe stay home. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and I understand what the genesis of, of Iraq and Afghanistan was. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not one that says, oh, it's all about oil. I don't know if it is or not. I don't really care. Um, all I know is that gas is getting more expensive again, and we haven't invaded any countries. Right. Uh, give it time. <laughs> just give it time. Right. But, you know, um, Iraq was retaliation for what Iraq did to Kuwait. You know, and kind of, kind of had it coming. Well, you're talking um, about the first Gulf War, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. you know, Saddam Hussein was a miserable human being. Um, he ruled Iraq with uh, with an iron fist and a pistol. Could be. Uh, why Iraqis are so afraid of pistols? I don't know. Just thought. Right. Well. <laughs> but um, you know, toppling that regime made perfect sense. Leaving it in a vacuum didn't make any sense at all. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things that, in hindsight, maybe even at the time, you know, before we even have the full picture, it's kind of like you know, I'm not quite sure why, but this just doesn't seem right. Um, yeah. There's, there's a lot of stuff that that our government does that, you know, looking from the outside in doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, you know, maybe there's an end game that, you know, nobody bothered to call and talk to me about. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but it, it's funny. I just watched a movie the other day, uh, called war dogs. I don't know if you've seen this or not. It's a couple of young guys. Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, what's yeah. that, that fellow's name? Yeah, I have seen, it. I've watched it, watched it a number of times. I actually like it. Yeah, Jonah Hill. Yes, when he was yes. when he still weighed three hundred pounds, um, <laughs> it it was it was funny and it was entertaining, but at the same time, um, it should open a lot of people's eyes because that's literally how government contracting goes. I know because I'm a small business owner that's authorized to to bid on contracts for the government. Um, I'm not going to bid against you know some gigantic healthcare facility, you know, to go in and, and do any kind of training. I'm going to take the crumbs. You know, and the crumbs, right. just like they said in the movie, the crumbs are worth millions. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And the government has set aside certain bidding opportunities just for veteran owned businesses and small disadvantaged uh, businesses and so on. So and I've been dealing with that since, you know, since my days in aerospace, hmm. you know, it's just now, it's kind of the way it, it works, I guess. Well, OK, so. Uh, and kind of step back a little bit. So you're down in Helmand Province, yeah. That con. So you're kind of doing the same thing every day that you that you mentioned. So oh, yeah. at, at what point does that end, and then you move on to the next one? Well, just to finish up on Helmand, um, you know, Triple Canopy went in there with the idea of taking over certain positions, and and having you know certain working conditions we were supposed to have you know decent living conditions we never got that um there was always confusion about who we were supposed to go to for medical care that was never made clear um we had issues with vehicles um when we first got there we didn't have we didn't have housing and we had no vehicles hmm. for like the first week um which was kind of odd um but it seemed like every time it it, it might start getting better because we were working two 12 hour shifts, seven days a week. You know, it was just constant work. There were no days off huh. and we'd get, we'd get new personnel in and, and we'd go, okay, cool. You know, we can start rotating guys out onto days off. 
and they would assume more more work on the base they would take more entry control points or take more positions or double staff in certain places so it was just it was always you know seven days a week 12 hours a day and that went on for seven months before i came home on vacation for two weeks wow yeah so when i got back i decided that uh you know i was going to go full steam ahead and apply for whips and see if i could get on a whips contract and get out of there and i did okay and so tell us about that no so that was so your wps uh time with and that was with ages correct correct same with you yeah, uh, but that so that was set the set the table for us on that. Now, well, it came about um, in the end. It came about really quickly. Um, you know, the, the process of getting on WPS, as you know, is, is pretty onerous. You know, you've got to come up with a bio, and your bio has to be reviewed by State Department and reviewed by the company, and and you have to be approved even to apply for WIPs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like okay. Um, I'm still kind of confused about how I got into it. I mean, I know I had, I had the experience as far as like executive protection and things like that. Um, and I had time in country. So I think that's probably what helped, but I know there were guys, you know, that worked for, for triple canopy that, that had more combat experience than I did and applied for whips and, and were turned down. Hmm. So still kind of confused about that, but you know, I took the money. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but in the end it was like, okay, you're accepted. This is your start date. And this is when you go to training. I'm like, uh, okay. Hmm. So I basically, uh, I bounced out of, um, of Helmand, uh, headed for whips, uh, just at the end of November or maybe beginning of December. I don't remember exactly when I got home. But I, I managed to be home for uh, for Christmas and for my birthday, and I left the day after my birthday in January, hmm. and and went to training at uh, T1G down in West Memphis, in Tennessee. Yeah, no kidding. No, 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 no. West Memphis, Arkansas. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. T1G is the name of the facility, and it was at a, a training company called VXL. I think you and I have talked about this. Yeah. No, I was, and I gotta ask. Uh, you know, because some of this stuff um, probably holds in, in terms of the NDAs and stuff we were told is classified. And you can't talk about this and you can't tell them about that. It's like, okay, yeah, whatever. Um, but that was, what year was that now? You were there 2012, 2011, 2012? Yeah. 2012. Okay. That's interesting. They must. So I'm wondering if they, they moved their training facilities. Because when I did it, it was in... I can go so far, according to what we signed, I can go so far as to say New Mexico, even though they didn't really yeah, want you, us to, yeah. Yeah, you went to New Mexico, and uh, they moved, I think, right after you went through WPS. Okay. And they moved, they moved to T1G in West Memphis, Arkansas. Okay. And now, from what I understand, they've moved again. I think they're, I think they're up by Fort Bragg. Interesting. But, um, yeah, it was... Uh, it, I'd already been to T1G. I went through training there with uh, with Triple Canopy. We went there for uh, some of our gun training. Um, very cool facility. Huh. Um, you just you couldn't ask for a nicer facility to train on. They had a landing zone. Uh, they had a, a a mount town built up. There was a, a demolition pit uh, on and off road driving. They had the big you know the the big asphalt driving course. Hmm. Wow. Um, Great dining facility, great classrooms. You know, a lot of really good rifle and 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 uh, hand grenade ranges, or not hand grenade, but you know, grenade launcher ranges. Um, just a really cool place to train. 
Huh. Now, in Arkansas. Said that, I was there in January and February in Arkansas, uh, and it was cold. I mean, you know, hmm. we'd, we'd get up in the mornings. It had been raining all night. The, the, the side of the Suburbans that was facing the wind were frozen shut. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and, and we were out there doing land nav and, you know, walking through these, these pastures, basically, you know, mud up to our ankles. And, and, but it was a, it was a great learning experience. Probably, I, I would say, I would say probably the best training I've ever been through. Hmm. You know, and, I, and I did it at an advanced age. Uh, most of the guys that I was going through training with were in their late twenties to to mid to late thirties. Right. I was going to say similarly with me. Uh, you know, uh, the average dude was about half my age. Um, but you know, it, it. I've heard that from other guys now that you know, you know, received a lot this instruction, lots of instruction, lots of training, lots of schooling, yada yada yada. But I've heard from a number of guys what you just said that some of the best training they've received was was uh, this WPS training that they've done yeah. s- starting uh, at about 2011, I guess, when they changed the whole curriculum. Yeah, yeah, when I went to WPS 3. Right, and, wow. And, you know, being a Navy guy, you know, I'd never gone through small unit tactics or anything like that. Our, our idea of a small unit tactic was making sure everybody made it back to the boat from the bar, <laughs> you know, before we sailed the next morning. You know, I'm out there crawling around on the ground and shooting guns and, you know, just raising hell and having fun. Right. Wow. Okay. But, but it, so everything's self-contained though in one area now, it's not spread out. You don't got to go to multiple areas for, for the various modules of training now anymore, right? Nope. Nope. The only thing, the only time we left that facility was when we were doing, uh, uh, you know, like three and four car, uh, movements, you know, moving a principal into town and, um, you know, we'd go into town and do advances and, and things like that. But that was the only time we left. Hmm. You know, wow. everything else was right there. Yeah. You know? So is this a military facility or is it? No, it's, it's a civilian facility. It was started by um, uh, Sawyer, Sawman. Really? He was, uh, he, yeah, he was paramount in, uh, in the construction and, and the birth of this place. And, and I mean, they did it right, man. There were. There were shoot houses, um, you know, they had two shoot houses set up with reconfigurable walls, big catwalk over the top, you know, so you could have uh, observers and everything. It was just, it was just an absolutely fantastic facility. Huh. I can't say enough good things about that place. Um, you know, even the, the barracks were nice. Um, hmm. Everything was clean. Um, you know, it had a nice big uh, uh, shower and, and restroom facility. Uh, laundry facility was right there. I mean, you just... We left the, the, the facility, like I said, just to go and do movement practice. And uh, we got one day off between PSS and ERT. And we went into town and had a meal and got haircuts. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. I think that's about that. That, that part hasn't changed then. Interesting. No. So it's, it's still pretty much, you know, uh, 20 hours a day, seven days a week, except for that one or two days. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and it was, you know, up in the morning and in the classroom and, and, uh, you know, you might go out and do, do rifle quals, you know, during the day or something like that. And, yeah. then, you know, get off at, at four 30 and back to the barracks and hang out for a little while go have chow. And then back in the classroom for a night shoot, you know, right. and you'd be out there, out there shooting until 11 or 12 o'clock at night. Okay. So, but uh, you know, I mean, how can you go wrong? You're out there cruising around shooting free ammo, wearing night vision. Well, you know? yeah. I mean, it's like, I, I've, I've told people before, it's like, I mean, it doesn't get any better. You're getting paid 
to do instruction and training. What the? I mean, how, hey, how, how can you complain? To, you're getting paid to shoot machine guns and Mark 19 automatic grenade launchers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm just saying I, that for me though, I, I hear what you're saying. The experience was good. And it's like, how can you how can you really complain? You know, you know, I mean guys did, and they probably oh, still of do. They did. But for me it was the the what I the thing I'll tell you, the only complaint I had were the were the whiny baby complainers that were whining and complaining about everything. Um and then when they were questioned about it, saying, No, what are you talking about? I didn't know. It's like No, I never said that. No, <laughs> Well, and then, and then, you know, just like anywhere else, it's like the training I, I took with triple canopy, the training I took with ages, um, you know, there's, there's always a, a cadre of instructors and there's always some really good ones. There's always some mediocre ones. And there's some that you just want to like give them a high five in the face with a folding chair, you know, <laughs> right. <laughs> no names, but you know, those guys are there and everybody knows it. Right. Um, you know, some of them are real hard asses. Um, some of them are just like, you know, normal guys out there doing a job and they want to share information with you. Right. Um, some of them, you have no idea how they became an instructor. <laughs> it's like, you know, that's that's what you had to deal with and, and you had to live with it. If you wanted to go and, and play their game, you know, right. you had to play by their rules. And that's okay. You right. know, because to me, it's like even bad instructors can teach you something. You know, even if they're teaching you, uh, how not to do something, right? You know, or how not to treat people, or how not to talk to other people. Yeah. Um, but and you know, it's funny you say that the whiners and the complainers. I think we talked about this before uh, on one of our on our first take on this podcast. Um, when we got to Hellman, um, there was a half a dozen guys that obviously didn't read the statement of work and didn't read the contract they signed. And we're incredibly disappointed to learn that they weren't going to be going out and up on our Humvees and kicking doors in, mm. in town. And it's like, yeah, that's not why we're here. You know? Right, right. You know, did, that, did, that's did a you common, not read the contract? Well, but that's a common fallacy and misconception in the minds of a lot of people about private security contractors or contractors in general. And when people think of contractors, they almost always think exclusively of private security contractors or mercenaries. Right. Something that they've gleaned from a movie or a video somewhere. And, uh, you know, to be sure, you know, there's mercenaries out there. I mean, true mercenaries. Sure. And there's true mercenary-type contracts. There's plenty of them. There always have been. Probably probably always will be. But the, the, the vast majority of that kind of work, the security work, is the kind of work that guys like us have done, and and you're right. That's not what we're. That's not what we sign up to do. So why guys come on contract thinking that's what they're going to do? I I don't get it. I don't understand. I don't either, especially for the money that they were paying us. It's like, you know, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm staying on the base. You know, you well, want me to go out and, and kick doors and take people down? So yeah, you got to pay me a whole lot more money. Well, and the, now, and thank you for bringing that up too, because uh, what you're talking about in Helmand Province when you went down there. And it's no slam necessarily against Triple Canopy or Constellus because I don't think it's really in – it's not – it's kind of out of their control, the, the pay range. You know, that's really dictated by the client, which is dictated by a lot of other things. Um, but isn't that a time when – and I, I'm not saying you necessarily, but weren't they paying a lot less then? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I still can't believe I, I went over there for that amount of money, but I did. Okay. Um, but, you know, then again – you're doing a pretty easy job. You're just in a crappy place, you know? Sure. But you're getting paid X number of dollars per day, whether you're working or not. Hmm. And you get paid seven days a week. Well, that's true. You know, yeah. so yeah. 
I mean, when you look at it, you know, from the 10,000 foot level, um, you know, a guy who just got out of the military and who qualified for something like that, who's maybe making $22,000 a year in the military, you know, now he goes and triples his money going to the same place and doing right. less work right. and not having anybody yell at him about his uniform or his beard or, you know, whatever. Hmm. But you know, you're yeah. right though. There, there is a huge misconception, um, about what we do and, and why we do it. And, and if you look up the word mercenary in the dictionary, um, it's basically anybody who goes to war for money and it, it doesn't, it doesn't delineate, you know, when you're sitting on your ass in a, in an ECP, you know, looking out, in the open country or if you're riding around in an armored vehicle, that's the definition. Um, I don't particularly subscribe to that. Um, to my mind, a mercenary is someone who has no loyalty or, or, or uh, um, what's the other, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, no loyalty to a specific company, country or government. You know, you just, right. you'll go wherever and fight anybody's war. Right. Um, that's not, that's not what we did. We represented the United States. We went to work for companies based in the United States um, to do a job on American basis. Right. That's well, it. Well, you know, definitions, it's interesting. If, if you look at some of the older um, uh, dictionaries, uh, and, you know, you can go way far back, and, and the definitions are even more different. But I'm just saying the definitions of words and phrases changes over time. Oh, sure. So the definition yeah. that you, the mo, you know, if you look at, depending on which dictionary you look at, you'll get same or similar definitions, but they're not always exactly the same. But if you go back and look at a dictionary, and I've got, uh, I forget who published it. I want to say Miriam, but maybe it was somebody else. Uh, it was published back in the late 50s, early 60s. I still have it. It's a, it's a thick book. But the definitions, I remember looking at words, I thought, wait a minute, um, I don't know, some years ago, not that long ago, I'd be saying, what? Wait a minute, I could have sworn. i go back, pull out that dictionary, look it up. It's like, eh, it's a different dif def different definition. So yeah. I guess where, where I'm going with that there, uh, Mike, is that the term, the word mercenary, um, and I haven't looked it up in that other book, in some of the other older books, but I've heard guys say that the definition you provided was fairly accurate, except that the older definitions, and I think this is where the mercenary laws all come from, is that you know it, it, it's a person who holds a person who goes and fights other countries or battles. The, the person who has and that person has no particular allegiance to that government right okay exactly you're just, so you're, you're fighting war for money right so but which is dip and people can say we're splitting hairs and we're mincing words and and we're walking a fine line and maybe we are but there is a distinct distinctual difference between what we did, because we didn't go out, we weren't actually fighting offensive wars. We weren't out there, you know, taking it to the enemy. We weren't going into town or go, going in and, and blowing stuff up and, and doing that. When that ever happened, it was always on a defensive posture, defensive measures. It might look like we're employing some aggressive offensive stuff, yeah. <laughs> but it's always in a defensive, reactive manner. Right. And I think that's and I think that's the difference, you know. So when they try to hold our feet to the fire by being mercenaries, well, you know. Anyway, um, here nor there. Um, so anyway, so you're working. You were working then. So now you're on contract. 
uh, for the company Aegis. Um, and I think uh, at that time, because there's Aegis Defense Services, which I believe is a British firm. And then they, but they did uh, Aegis North America or Aegis LLC, something like that, right? Well, they had to to get the contracts. Right. And, and, and you know, you talked about before, you talked about, you know, how the, it's been monetized, you know, for the, the work that we did. When, when all this stuff first started, guys were going over there and making thousands of dollars a day because it, it was completely unre- unrestricted, unregulated. They need people in place. Um, they got a hold mostly of tier one, tier 1.5 operators, you know, Delta, Navy SEALs, guys like that, that said, yeah, I'll go and do this job for you, but it's going to cost you this much money. And there were only a couple of companies that were doing it. You know, there was, there was Blackwater. Eric Pierce got himself, you know, in there and, and in just the right time frame. And he made a bunch of people rich, you know, just, just for going over there. Hmm. But as it happens with everything else, just like any security you look at in this country, I mean, you look at mall security or, or you know, some of these other security companies that are guarding, uh, you know, landfills or whatever. Um the market becomes saturated and then it becomes a bidding war and it's no longer the best guys for the job. It's lowest bidder, just mm. like it is in mm. the military with everything else. Right. So it's about lowest bidder. Well, it's certainly degenerated or deteriorated or whatever adjectives or verbs you want to use, but that's, that's what, what's, what has happened. You're right. Um, well, yeah. The, and there was a, there was a Genesis to that too. I mean, you know, some of the things that happened with Blackwater, you know, um, whether it was justified or not, whether they were, within the legal means or not, it, it changed the way contracts were done. And, and Aegis, um, you know, they wanted to get these government contracts, but as a British company, they couldn't. So they had to open, you know, Aegis LLC North America, um, you know, to bid on these contracts and be successful with them. Right. And, and they did. And, and as I recollect, they were only in the game for like a couple of years before. And I, you know, uh, I mean, uh, a lot of things happened to, oh, yeah. to wreck the party, but uh, they were only in it for a couple of years, as I recollect. Um, I think by the time, you know, the, the, the coffin was sealed, it was probably, you know, a total of about three years. But um, yeah. So, well, okay. And, so, and anyway, you know so how these things happen too, right? It's like who had the contract in Iraq before SOC came along, you know? Right. Right. Who had the contract, you know, initially for. For Helmet Province before Triple Canopy came along, um, right. you know. So there's always contract sniping, and you know because it's the government, they have put this stuff out for rebid. And if people get companies get the right intelligence, they can underbid their competitors and they can get the work. Right. But now you're you're trying to hire guys that you know just six months ago um, were being paid six hundred dollars a day to do something. You want to pay them two fifty. <laughs> those 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 guys aren't coming back no you know? <laughs> no no you know right and the companies are then scrambling looking for people and, and and that's not the only reason there's a lot of reasons but that sometimes can be the reason why they change uh you know entry requirements for example yeah. uh because like hey you know we can't get what you're looking for in that time frame we're going to have to step down on a, a rung or two on the ladder yeah, tier one operators are not going to work for that kind of money ever. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so so it's just like anything else. You, you've got a, a uniform division to your security company and you want to put guards, you know, at a certain place. And you're going to pay them 12 bucks an hour. Right. You know, you're going to get $12 an hour personnel. Right. That's all there is to it. Well, you know, interestingly, and I'm not 
you know, uh, what you said, I, I think, is an axiom. And But I, I know from experience, there's, there have been a handful of occasions where I've met those guys and worked with a few of them. And it's like, you know, you're talking to them, it's like, why? Why are you here? You know, well, I've already had my day. You know, I've had my party. You know, I've had my fun. Um, yeah. I'm just trying to slow down now, take a break, um, you know, look around and see if I still want to do this anymore. Um, right. You know, so, and then and then here in the States, it's kind of like, well, you know, um, you know, they, they, did, they didn't know, and we've talked about this on other episodes, you know, about putting out information for resources. But, I mean, it's like they didn't know where to turn. What am I going to do now? You know, um, yeah. they, they weren't prepared for that day when they were, when they were getting out. And it's like, right. You know, well, and, and you know, the, the, not necessarily, well, the VA to a point, but there've been a lot of other organizations that have come together, um, because of that very, that very topic, you know, you've got these guys that are, you know, they go in the military at 17 or 18 years old. They have no experience, you know, and then they spend four years as a, as an infantryman, or, you know, some other job specific to the military, and they have no marketable skills in the civilian market, you know? So they're like, oh, what do I do? You know? There's a lot of places out there now that are helping these guys transition into civilian life, you know, teaching them how to use their GI benefits, and, and you know, not just... Right. College isn't for everyone, you know? Use your GI bill and go get a, an EP certificate, or, you know, go learn how to weld. Right. Something like that. You know, there's a lot of things out there these these guys can do. And then you've got, you know, the whole PTSD thing. Um, you've got you've got these guys that, you know, have been injured in battle. Um, you know, they have traumatic brain injuries and things like that. PTSD is absolutely real. But of course, you still have, you know, a group of people that are going to abuse that hmm. because PTSD is is PTSD is a subjective uh, diagnosis. You know, you can't just can't take an X-ray and go, "Oh, look, there's some PTSD right there." <laughs> you know, it's it's all about the story you tell. So I know there's guys out there that are collecting 100% disability through the VA that don't deserve it. Yeah, well, yeah, and, and I know we've we've all met 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 those guys. Oh and, yeah, and, and we've we've met them, haven't we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Sometimes we meet them on contract. I have. Uh, yeah, so and, and it's kind of aggravating too when when you realize, you know, the sham that they pulled and it's and that they're they're delighted about it and it's like, <laughs> really, man, <laughs> you know, there's people out there that really need this. But anyway, oh, yeah. um, I yeah, digress. We've had guys on contract that were on a hundred percent disability, you know, and it's just like, well, what are you doing here? <laughs> well, they never said I couldn't work. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if your brain's a little scrambled, I don't think giving you a gun is a really good idea at this right. point. <laughs> well, <laughs> just, yeah. Uh, just me being silly. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. I mean, that, you know, that, and that's a subject we could spend hours on, um, oh, God, on, yeah. on um, talking about, but it's, it's just, yeah. I mean, you know, if you've got that, if they've, if they have provided you that high of a percentage of a disability yeah you really shouldn't be running around over here with a gun in your hand but uh yeah um so get back so let's circle back now to uh so you you're on the wps project which is the state department thing and you're working for ages and so you go through the training and what happens well i came the couch for a few weeks and uh, got called by one of the detailers and you know, told me they had a position open in Kabul and, and asked if I wanted to go. And I'm like, well, yeah, it's, you know, that's why I trained. 
So I got sent over to the Kabul Embassy Security Force and um, ran into a couple of the same trainers I had while I was in in training at, in Arkansas. Hmm. Um, can't, can't say they were my favorite people, but you know, whatever. <laughs> um, now I've, I've qualified on weapon systems and, and different weapons, um, since 1974, I was in junior ROTC. I was on the rifle team, um, you know, qualified on the M14, uh, 1911 pistol. I've never failed a weapons qualification in my life. Not once. Hmm. And that's with every company. Um, I go over to, to Kabul and, uh, you know, we started the indoctrination procedure into, you know, how the embassy security force works and, and all this. And, and then state department came out and said that they wanted everybody to requalify on weapons as soon as they got in country, which didn't make a whole lot of sense, but it's like, okay, let's go shoot, you know, free ammo. I'm in, <laughs> um, you know, shot everything, shot rifles, pistols, shotguns, everything. Um, the very first time I shot the 240 and the 249 at the schoolhouse, I scored a 40 on each one of them. Hmm. Got to Kabul, went out to the range. I could not break 30 on the 249. Couldn't do it. Huh. They gave me multiple opportunities. Never scored higher than 30 and just could not understand why. And uh, I got sent home because of it. Wow. Yeah. So uh, I got home in uh, in June. And on uh, July 1st, our oldest daughter passed away from sepsis. So I, I'm not a big believer in coincidence or, you know, things like that. But um, had I not disqualified on that weapon, I would have been in, in country uh, when my daughter died. Huh. So there was a reason, you know. Well, yeah, I, 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 there is. And, <clears throat> you know, I often say that, you know, things happen for a reason and frequently – uh, we'll never know what the real no. reason was, um, oh. and, and, you know, and that, and that, and, and people will say, and I'm not in disoccurrence with them. It's you know, uh, there's oftentimes uh, it, there's a higher hand at play, um, you know, guiding us. So yeah, so 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 so, so, so you come. I was supposed to be home. And yeah, I came home. Again. Okay. Well, that's not completely true i mean I, I went to work for another company called gsi uh when i got home now that I was for them for about four years global strategies right yeah okay yeah um we protected a uh, uh very well-known very wealthy uh undisclosed client um traveled the world you know went to hong kong you know all over the place um did a lot of domestic travel you know um Florida and, and uh, Tennessee and all kinds of different places. Went to Canada a few times. Um, it was it was a cool job. Um, it was kind of an on call thing. You know, they'd they'd have a detail and they'd call up and go, "Okay, you're ready to go here and there." And I'm like, "All right, whatever." Hmm. Um, I did that for four years. At the same time, I was doing that. I was working here in California for a couple of different companies doing executive protection and and. Uh, high-end retail protection things, um, jewelry stores, you know, high-end watches, stuff like that. And then I worked for one company that, uh, that got the contracts every year on a rotating basis for the Emmys and the Oscars. Hmm. So I've worked all of those, you know, got to rub shoulders with celebrities and 
figured out they're just as shallow in person as they are on TV. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's been, um, it's been in life. Um, you know, my head says, yeah, let's go do it one more time. You know, let's deploy. And my body goes, yeah, try it and die, fat boy. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not going to happen anymore. So um, I kind of settled into semi-retirement now. Um, still teaching every once in a while. Do some firearms classes here and there. And, uh, you know, some medical training. Um, but that's, you know, that's pretty much it. That's, that's my contractor life. Okay, so I was going to ask, and, and to some extent you, you've already told us, you know, uh, as we near the end of this uh, episode, what uh, there's a lot of questions I'd like to ask, a lot of stuff we, I'd like to talk about. Um, and so with that said, uh, Mike, I'd like to invite you back at some point in the future so we can follow up and uh, cover down in more detail and, and cross on to some other uh, topics that we didn't have time to do. Um, sure. awesome. Great. Um, so of, of the experiences you've had as a contractor and the experience you've had here in the States working security, um, do you have a preference? Which, I mean, if you had it all over to do again, would you do it again? Do I have a preference? Well, I mean, do would you rather work overseas or stateside? And if you could do it again, would you or would you do it again if if you had the oh, opportunity? I, yeah, I'd do it again in a heartbeat. You know, um, I would like to make overseas money working at home. <laughs> okay, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, um, there's there's a lot of things about contracting that I don't miss. Um, I don't miss crappy living conditions. I don't miss the food or lack thereof. Um, uh, I don't, I don't miss some of the places that we were in. I miss the camaraderie of working with a, a large group of diverse guys that, you know, um, we all have the same basic goal in mind and that's to go home. Mm. Um, there, but there's, there's things, you know, working at home that, especially some of the stuff that I've done, you know, working with these, these, uh, Hollywood types and, you know, so-called celebrities, um, I have a really hard time, and, and this is what finally got me out of doing it. I, I quit doing it completely a few years ago. Um, I could no longer commit myself to protect someone that wouldn't throw a glass of water on my head if my hair was on fire. Wow. You know? Um, you know, that's interesting sentiment. I've heard other guys say the same sort of thing. Well, it's, it's absolutely true. I mean, you see these people on television and, they are nothing like who they're portraying. They're, they're being paid to pretend to be someone else. Right. Um, they're shallow. They're insecure. Um, hmm. They're uh, incredibly arrogant. Hmm. Um, now, having said that, I've met some really cool people, too. Um, but the, the, the bad ones outweigh the good about eight to one. Hmm. You know? Wow. Um, you, you're, just, you're dealing with people who who have no concept of what, it, what real life is. They've, huh. they've either grown up privileged. Um, and, and when I say privileged, I, I don't mean any specific race or gender or anything. They grew up with money. And, and to me, that's what privilege is. When I hear people say, Oh, well you have, you know, whatever kind of privilege, white privilege or whatever. And it's like, no, you either grew up with money or you grew up working your butt off to get what you wanted. Right. You know? Yeah. And, and these people grew up with money and, you know, going out and spending $500 on lunch is nothing to them. Hmm. Um, 
you know, some of the hotels that I that I worked at uh, protecting these people, you look at the menu and, and like a bottle of vodka, literally, that you can buy a block away in a grocery store for twenty dollars is two hundred and seventy five bucks. <laughs> Serious. Yeah, yeah. And that's on that's on the menu and they will order it and they will pay it and the it means money means absolutely nothing to them. Wow. Wow. You know, that's, that's, it, it reminds me of the, the vision that went through my mind when you said that was uh, we've seen the, the comedy movies, and some of them weren't always comedies, but there was always a comical scene where somebody orders a very expensive meal at a restaurant, and the, and the people in the back room, uh, you know, uh, call up their best friend at this, you know, Joe Schmoe's whatever, uh, you know, a few blocks down, and <laughs> they deliver it to them. They, they heat it up yeah, real exactly. quick. <laughs> It's like what? <laughs> so that's yeah. what, I'm just saying that that went through my mind when you said that. Um, I, uh, yeah, and and it's true, you know. These, um, you know, like I said, I've met a I've met a few really cool people, hmm. but for the most part, these are people that have absolutely no concept of what happened, what happens in the real world. Or, right. Or, and, and you know, if you took them and you wouldn't even have to drop them in Afghanistan, you could drop them in Arizona. <laughs> they wouldn't they wouldn't survive three days you know well yeah no um i hear what you're saying um i don't want to disparage them too much um you know I, i've had my uh uh what's i gonna say my dealings with with those types of people as well and the, like you know it's kind of like a lot of people they're not all bad some some sometimes you know i mean i was like man what's that dude's problem and you realize they just got an awful lot of pressure um, and they're, you know, to perform and, um, you know, and then they'll come up to you later and, you know, and you realize, and, and they'll kind of in their own way, kind of tell you that and, and in their own way, apologize. But, uh, I hear what you're saying, man. So let me ask you, um, what sort of golden nugget or sage advice would you provide people, the people that are listening? What is it you would like to leave them with? Something you'd like them to think about as uh, we wrap this up? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I don't know. I, I think if, you know, some younger folks that are thinking about, you know, getting into this line of work or, you know, some sort of executive protection work or something like that, um, you know, just know that there's a shelf life. And you, you can't do this your whole life. Um, you'll, you'll wear yourself out. You'll burn out uh, or you'll, you'll just fade away. Um, have a backup plan, you know, um, and, and try to go out and get some, some varied life experiences instead of just, you know, staying in one particular place, you know, doing one particular thing. Try other stuff. See if you like it. Mm. I mean, I've, I've done all kinds of stuff. I've been a professional motorcycle racer. Mm. Um, you know, I, I've worked in aerospace on the space shuttle program. I've worked in security. I've worked in medicine. Um, I've worked overseas. I've been on five of the seven continents. Um, I've been to more countries than I can count between the Navy and contracting. Um, I've seen some incredibly beautiful things and some incredibly ugly. So, mm. you know, be prepared for all of it. Right. Okay, well said, my friend. Um, so for the folks that are listening, uh, again, my guest for this uh, episode was uh, Mike Ritchie, um, former member of the United States Navy, overseas contractor, uh, now currently the owner of uh, 
his own company uh, where he uh, provides, uh, I mean, you provide mostly uh, firearms instruction, right? And first aid kind oh, no. of stuff? No, um, mostly it's uh, it's medical, uh, first aid training, CPR, AD, first aid, advanced first aid, tactical medicine. Um, we also do uh, uh, security evaluations for companies and, and a lot of... Uh, uh, relevant training for for companies and corporations for uh, active shooter and workplace violence prevention. Okay. Again, well, I you know much gotta, better said than I would have done. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Gotta stay fluid, man. Right. Okay. Uh, so, and the name of the company is Survival Mindset Training. Correct. It's actually Survival Mindset, but I had to go with Survival Mindset Training to get the uh, the dot com that I wanted. Gotcha. Survival Mindset. Okay. And the website is survivalmindsettraining.com. All right. Right. Well, excellent. Uh, again, I want to thank my guest, uh, Mike Ritchie, for bearing with me <clears throat> and uh, working this out and uh, discussing uh, his experiences as a private security contractor overseas. And again, he'll be back at some point in the future to do this again. We'll pick up and cover down a lot of other stuff, uh, maybe expound on some more things that we touched upon. Uh, I want to thank you, the folks uh, that are listening, uh, the audience for listening, taking the time out of your day to listen to this. Uh, remember to uh, be careful what you wish for, folks. You might just get it. Uh, stay safe by staying frosty. And until next time, keep it real. <laughs>